Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. A lot of the papers are picking up on this story about the possibility of uh, Ireland moving to a four day working week. And I take it anybody working would love the idea of just working four days a week, but still hanging on to your full pay. We all love a bank holiday weekend because we know when we head back into work on the Tuesday, you'll have a a shorter week. It's just a four day working uh, week and uh, a four day working week. There's been been this big campaign behind this programme to introduce a four day working week in the country and it's seemingly it's not about lazy workers wanting more uh, time off and wanting to get paid the same amount and it's going to get spoken about in the Oireachtas today at the Oireachtas Committee on Enterprise Trade and Employment and it seems politicians are going to hear that doing four days work for five days pay would bring a host of benefits to workers all over the country including things like lowering child care costs. Now the chairperson of the Four Day Week Ireland campaign, Joe O'Connor, we've spoken with Joe on the programme uh, before. He's really the man who's been really pushing this uh, campaign. He's going to the Oireachtas Committee today and he's going to put the cause forward for a four four day working week and he says it could have a potential revolution in gender equality and also help with the struggle against climate change. So I imagine the politicians will listen with keen interest anything that can help with climate change. He will call for a gradual transition to this shorter working week and he wants it in all sectors of the economy. He will say that the medium-term objective is for this to become the new default work arrangement. But the key part is there would be no loss of pay. He says their campaign seeks to challenge the always on culture. And this always on culture, he feels, has crept into all aspects of Ireland Irish, the Irish economy and it makes long hours as a perverse, almost a badge of honour and he wants to shift public, political and the media narrative about working time reduction. He says a shorter working week 
is not about lazy workers wanting more time off, as some people would have you believe. He says it's a business improvement strategy and it's centred on working smarter rather than longer and also at the same time investing in the well-being of the most important asset to any business and that's their people and that's something I've always firmly believed in. And the businesses that believe their most important asset are their people, are the ones I think that are always the most uh, successful. And I always love when I'm involved and go into any business or any hotel or restaurant or any kind of a retail establishment. And when you hear that workers have been in, you know, oh, I'm working there 20 years or I'm working there 15 years or this is my 25th year, I always think it's a really great sign of a business. If a business can hold on to their staff, then surely the reason they're holding on to their staff is they see them as their greatest greatest asset. So I 100% would back Joe O'Connor on this one. He says his submission to the Oireachtas committee today says a four day week has been successfully adapted by a range of companies already here in Ireland. He says the four day week Ireland campaign is going to roll out this six month trial. Now it's starting next year and there are about 17 countries who are going to participate uh, in it. Uh, Joe O'Connor talks about academic studies which show that there is no correlation between working long hours and greater productivity because I think the problem with people who insist on working really long hours and look at me and I great I'm, I'm the, the busiest man or woman in the, in the company they're usually the ones that head for burnout and of course if you're heading for burnout and you're anyway stressed you're not going to be giving the best of yourself so therefore a company is not going to get greater productivity from somebody who is either stressed or heading for uh, burnout. Joe O'Connor says a four-day working week is working for a huge number of businesses worldwide. So this isn't reinventing the wheel, including a long-running trial in Iceland that includes offices, play schools, hospitals and even at Microsoft in Japan. They are opting for a four-day uh, working week. He claims studies show it can significantly reduce carbon emissions and it will make a huge contribution to the struggle against climate change. He quote research from a Swedish university that projects reducing the average working week to four days would deliver a reduction of emissions of up to 16%. He said most companies who've trialled or introduced the four-day week report happier, more focused employees and critically all of the companies say they actually got higher productivity. Isn't that unreal? And, and I think for a lot of business owners they'll probably be scratching their heads saying how if I have workers coming in on less days of the week how will I end up with higher, higher productivity but seemingly all of the academic evidence and studies that they've done are actually there. The businesses that have opted for this four-day working week model have experienced reduced employer burnout. Uh, absolutely, you could see, you definitely would see that that would be, uh, that that would happen. They also say they're seeing less stress, they're seeing less sick leave, less ab- absenteeism and my point, they're also seeing less turnover. They have a happier staff and the happier staff are remaining in situ. Joe O'Connor says the concept is based on the principle of the 180-100 model. What's the 180-100 model? I hear you cry. Uh, well, it, it breaks down into uh, 100% of pay for 80% of the time, but critically in exchange for 100% of the productivity. For 
Day Week Ireland was formed. It's been going since 2019 and obviously it includes groups like the unions are there. They do have a lot of businesses involved. They have environmentalists, women's representatives and academics and obviously but the women's representatives are really in there from the childcare side of it because even though a lot the men are stepping up to the mark when it comes to childcare, childcare traditionally lands on the lap of the women and the mothers in the family. So if they're only working four days a week, they'll be saving on uh, childcare costs. So we welcome your thoughts on that. And as I say, the fact that they are before the Oroctus Committee on Enterprise Trade and Change enterprise trade and employment today I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this four day working week I take it there are very few people out there that would be against a four day working week just let people know because I can see a flurry of uh, texts coming in from people who seem to be having a problem with their phones this morning it seems to be predominantly Vodafone some people are saying one listener is saying their Vodafone has been down since 4pm yesterday you can text but you can't make or receive calls and I saw an earlier text into Ken from a listener who said their three network uh, was. Oh, sorry, no, they've got three dead phones in the house. I'm, a, I'm a, assuming again that that is uh, Vodafone. John Paul is aware of it, is in the process of trying to get through to Vodafone to see what is going on, to see if it is just a Cork issue or is it just a certain section of Cork. So bear with us and uh, we'll hopefully get an answer back from Vodafone soon on that. Now, I mentioned the four-day working week and the campaign is going to the Oroctus Committee on Enterprise, Trade and Employment today. Barry sees a bit of a problem in it for some sectors of society. Good morning to you, Barry. Uh, good morning, Patricia. You're not fully uh, I, you're not fully against it, but you can see problems know, arising. Well, I, 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 I actually think it's a great idea uh, because four days for everybody is what we'd all welcome. But I'm just uh, looking, thinking about uh, the building, the hotels, you know, uh, the, all that side of it. If some, if there's a breakdown or there's a need for to call out a certain um, expert during the three days that we're off, uh, who actually who actually does that service? Yeah, that there wouldn't be enough people to have cover. At the minute, at the minute, every trade in Ireland, certainly in Munster anyway, is are scrambling for workers. There just isn't. There's nothing like. There's, I mean, the amount of people that we actually require to do the work for us, they're just not there. Like so, we're we're actually scrambling to get qualified and people to work already. You know. So certainly in the trade trade, it wouldn't uh, four day working week wouldn't wouldn't operate. And you reckon in, in retail and and also hospitals is an obvious one with doctors and nurses. But I suppose the idea would be you would for it to work properly, you need to employ enough people so that businesses that do op- operate seven days a week, like shops, like hospitals, like you say, trades have to be available seven days a week. We would just need to be employing more people, but we just yeah, don't have and them. Then, and, then, and then get every shop I've walked into in recent times anyway, around uh, Cork and all that area, every one of them, with the exception of very, very few, have um, notices on their windows, wanted uh, staff apply within. Yeah, and go to the, talk to anybody in the hospitality sector. We've got cafes and restaurants that are only operating on a three, four day week. They want to be open seven days, but they can't get the staff. And the very same, uh, it, it, the building industry is in almost in crisis at the moment due to the lack of a skilled workforce. And that is right through the, the actual business from plasters to electricians to plumbers. Uh, they're, they're just not there because there's been a, 
there's been a huge, um, I suppose, uh, famine of them being introduced to the trade over the past 10, 15 years, and we probably lost a generation of them as well to... Um, when they immigrated, mm. uh, but we're in we're in the, we're in the situation we're in now. I think the four day weeks. I say it's a fabulous idea, but um, we have to have more people available. Ti- yeah, yeah, it's the it's the timing is is all wrong. Just on that yeah. issue with trades uh, people, Barry, what what is the solution? Do we need to look overseas to get to get well, more? Well, com- we do, but uh, most of the people, including ourselves, have looked overseas as well. And uh, all the overseas, all the people that are overseas now are quite happy working in their own countries. They've got um, their money is quite. They're being paid decent money, and the cost of living is a lot cheaper in their countries than it is to work here. Yeah. So the chances of getting them over here now are uh, are slim and none at the minute. Yeah, it's very different to when they first came. I mean, should look across the water to the UK, trying to get the Eastern European drivers to come back and to none of them want to come back uh, either for those, for those very reasons. Somebody else is saying uh, a four-day working week that c- couldn't work with schools. What about uh, teachers? And then here's a good yep. one from Dermot saying, I'm just heading out to ask my cows, how would they feel if I only milked them four days a week? A, self, <laughs> a, se- a self-employed person must work every day, which is, yeah, it's not going to work for everybody for sure okay no, absolutely not. okay listen Barry appreciate uh, that look after yourself and stay safe and yeah, uh, thank th- thanks That's for joining us uh, good morning to you a da- and this is an- another texter saying a dairy farmer here would love a four day working week we'll have to negotiate with the cows on that one to ensure productivity last time I had a day off I was in the Bon Secure Hospital when I was getting an epidural for a lower back injury goodness me that sums up the life of farmers who are literally on 24-7 stay safe out there thank you for your calls and comments on that and can I just say and I saw this yesterday online and it really really made me smile Catherine Ross Murphy remember Catherine she joined us on the programme was it last year just before Christmas she joined us because she had published self-published herself she'd put together this little book she'd put together it together at home called Catherine's Old Time Recipes and it was filled with recipes that our mothers and grandmothers would have done and I can I clearly remember last Christmas using Catherine's Old Time uh, Recipe for stuffing for the stuffing for the for the Christmas turkey and it was just it's a lovely little it's a really really lovely little book and she joined us to talk about it and we got so much interest in this for the various recipes that were in it and people wanting to remember I suppose recipes and dishes that were made in their childhood and that's exactly what Catherine's book was all about so there were lots and lots of, of books sold and of course the whole premise behind it was Catherine would she wanted to make sure that these recipes would be there forevermore for future generations but she wanted to do it as a fundraiser for charity as well and it, it had to, she had to reprint more and more and more of the books. Such was the interest. Well, it has been incredibly successful for her. And the latest round of proceeds going to the various uh, charities, she's given now in total to the uh, Community Air Ambulance €12,050 to the St Vincent de Paul. She's given €6,605. And then a collection of other smaller uh, charities, 1450 so she said when you add it all up her tiny little old fashioned recipe book has raised over 20 
thousand euro. That's just incredible. And well done to Catherine Ross Murphy for putting that book uh, together. Absolutely thrilled that it was so successful, but thrilled on behalf of really good charities who have benefited. Well done to you, Catherine. 1850-333-103. Lines open. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie now, I was hoping to talk about vacant homes in Cork, an issue that was raised by East Cork Fianna Fáil uh, Dáil Deputy James O'Connor to the Housing Minister, Darrow uh, uh, O'Brien. And hopefully I will get to that uh, topic. But um, James O'Connor uh, joins me uh, this morning and, and I feel, uh, good morning to you, James, that I have to instead put the focus of my attention on the National Development Plan, which was announced this week amid much fanfare here in Cork. And there was a number of key uh, road networks uh, mentioned but we listened with interest and waited to hear what was going to be announced for East Cork things like the Fosha Road into Cork the Castle Martyr and the Killer Bypasses none of them included you must have been bitterly disappointed on Monday Patricia first and foremost thank you for having me on Um, and uh, you are correct to point out in relation to the National Development Plan being a major issue for my constituency uh, I was elected on a mandate by the people of Cork East uh, to raise the many needs in terms of our constituency's uh, capital infrastructure. These include roads, buildings of new new health facilities, uh, construction of new schools, and all of these issues I've been on your show to speak with you uh, with on multiple occasions on behalf of my, my constituents and the people of Cork East. And I'm, I really am uh, thrilled and honoured to, to, to have the opportunity to represent them at a national level in Dáil Airden. And the publication of the National Development Plan this week, uh, you know, contained uh, details of which I personally strongly uh, uh, disagree with. Uh, I was expecting uh, that a number of key, key key infrastructure projects would be individually referenced by government. Uh, and I had representations and commitments uh, to the people of Cork East and to me as their, as their TD uh, that some projects would be included. Uh, with particular reference to Castle Martyr and Killa in terms of the N25 upgrade. Uh, I learned uh, on, t- on Thursday and, and on Wednesday from engagement I had at Cabinet level and with senior government officials uh, that everything was on track. Uh, and I received confirmation on Sunday night that neither Cove was going to be included, the photo road was going to be included, or Castle Martyr and Killa. So hang on, so you were saying last week you were speaking with officials um, and I'm assuming senior ministers in government and they were saying, yes, you're you're not going to get all of it, but you'll get some of it. East Cork will get some of the allocation. Is that what you're saying? You were definitely told that last week. I was told that over a long period of months, Patricia, uh, a number of months. So uh, then Sunday night, did you get a phone call? I, I received a phone call on Sunday night. Um, I was travelling at the time, and um, I was I was told that it was not going to be the case. But but who who can you say who called you? I think I think out of respect for the individual, is there not an elected okay. official? I oh, don't want to, to, to go into that, and I think it's only fair and proper that that is the case. The reasons given? There wasn't any, um, but I do want to say, and this is why I'm here with you this morning, Patricia. Uh, from the outset, is I want to register my anger, uh, my upset at uh, that the fact that I had been deeply misled as a Fianna Fáil TD, who had acted in good faith and had met on, at every step along the process with different government ministers from the Taoiseach to the Minister for Public Expenditure and the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, to lobby on behalf of my constituents 
for this project, which is crucial to the future of East Cork, particularly people living in places like Middleton and Yall, Killa and Castle Martyr, Ladies Bridge, Ballamacoda, you know, Dungorny as well, because that bottleneck is adding 20 minutes in the evening time to people's journeys and is also causing substantial delays in the morning. And what that means for the average person living in that area, Patricia, is that they're losing out on opportunities for things like students, perhaps, in, in the town of Yall, uh, that, that, that may wish to remain living at home and save thousands in student accommodation costs, and they can commute up and down from Cork City. Some people are doing it, but the commute as it stands is an unnecessary nightmare. And all I had asked for, and it, does, it may sound like a lot of money, but in a capital plan that's over $150 billion, I had looked, sought about $54 million to provide two relief loads at Castle Martyr and Killa. And they would make such a difference to the lives of people and people who, who use and commute through those. It kil- really would. Yeah. And the economic situation in Yall as well, Patricia, which I know you are familiar with, uh, we have struggled for a very long time to replace the over 4,000 jobs in manufacturing and light industry uh, and, and technologies uh, that were in town before the millennium. All of those jobs either, unfortunately, became redundant because of change, changing technologies or, or, or old industries going out of fashion and jobs relocating to Eastern Europe as well. Of course, the likes of, of Yall Carpets and other companies that would have employed many hundreds, in some, some cases over a thousand people at some of those facilities, uh, all closed down and have, it, had, have had a dramatically negative effect in the town over a long period of time. And my goal and hope was to see better connectivity to the port of Cork for the people of Yall better connectivity to Cork Airport, which has been done through Dunkettle, but also needs to be done at Castle Martyr and Killa, so that we would have more prosperity for the community that elected me to Cork County Council on day one, and for the community that I made a commitment to as a TD to solve this particular issue. And while I'm here with you this morning, Patricia, and it's very, very important for me to put, to put my cards on the table here, I've been misled. I'm angry. Uh, I, I feel that the people who elected me uh, feel that pain. Uh, and I and I, I want to say here and now that I will not stand for it. Are you saying this is possibly a resignation issue for you? I'm saying that if I don't, fulfill, if the commitments that were made to me were not fulfilled, I may consider such action. Uh, and, I, and I want to say categorically those commitments had been made to me. Many of my colleagues were witness to those commitments uh, at, at parliamentary party meetings. But I would like to say on the record uh, and to inform people of where things stand that I have been uh, in, in intense conversations and negotiations uh, with the Taoiseach's office and with other senior cabinet ministers since Sunday night. Uh, I have done so privately on an individual basis, not disclosing this to the public. But I do feel it's now in the public interest that I would say this in the public domain because I think people deserve to know what is going on. I, I've also been quite hurt by the actions of some local independent county councillors who sought to use this as a stick to beat me, uh, which is completely and utterly untrue. I have been fighting the good fight as hard as I can behind the scenes, and I will not put up uh, with the current situation. Because the language included in the NDP, and you may, may, may be aware, Patricia, some may, may, may people may have heard us, although there was individual referencing of the Castle Martyr Killer project, this only came as a result of the conversations I would have had late on Sunday night and early on Monday morning. Yeah, I was, I, 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 was, I, was, I was just about to mention that. Did you, I mean, do you take any comfort from the fact that the Taoiseach, uh, Micheál Martin, 
while he said some smaller bypasses or relief road projects have not been mentioned in the NDP and clearly the ones in East Cork haven't been. He said there was flexibility to facilitate them if other projects are delayed and he specifically named checked the Castle Martyr relief road. Do you think that was aimed at you to say, look, it's okay, James, we'll remember you if another project is delayed? As a matter of fact, the only reason that happened was because of the intervention I made on Sunday night immediately after I was told. At half past ten, uh, I, I, I initiated a process of conversation with the Taoiseach's office regarding to register my, my unhappiness. Uh, and in fact, my disgust of what had happened. Uh, I had been told in good faith by a number of different sources at senior levels right across government that this project was okay. Nobody told me at any stage that it was a non-runner. As would often happen in politics where people would say that the cost is just too much. But in reality here, what I had asked for was for Castle Martyr Killa to be included on the National Development Plan. And one of the great wrongs, and I must call out Sean Sherlock on this, Patricia, that was done when during the 2014 document, that was, it was also excluded and it should have been included in that. And had it been included when Fine Gael and Labour were in government in 2014, it would have been constructed by now. And I think it was a bit rich to see a post on Facebook yesterday from that dull deputy calling out the government for not including it this time around because there was a very comprehensive document that very well looked after cabinet ministers in his own party, particularly in Wexford, uh, where hundreds of millions were spent on roads where there was less than 60% of the traffic that's going up and down Castle Martyr Village. And that's something I would like to put on the record and to other uh, public representatives who've been using this in the last number of days as a stick to beat me is quite frankly not true that I have been saying nothing. I have been consistently raising this issue over the last two and a half years since I was elected to Cork County Council. Do you Uh, feel you've been lied to? Yes. By whom? By, by, By everyone or anyone in particular? By a multitude of colleagues. I think it's unfair to lay the blame at anyone's feet. But I would like to say that I do feel I have been deeply misled. I am hurt by what has happened. And above all else, I wanted to come up here to Dáil Éireann to represent the people who've elected me in Cork East with integrity, uh, with an understanding of their needs. And this is one of the most important issues in this constituency. And I would like to say that I will continue to fight for this project to be included at the National Development Plan. And I will not relent until I get a commitment from government that this project will be supported. The language contained within the NDP is not sufficient. Who are you hoping to meet with today? I have asked for a meeting with Antishuk Michal Martin and the Minister for Transport. I have yet to receive an official reply uh, responding to that request. And if I do not receive that, if I do not receive any information on that in the next number of days, I will be making uh, a num- I, I will be looking at a number of options, including resigning the whip of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party. That's a big move, James. It is, but I think given the circumstances that we are in, Patricia, and the importance that this project is to the people of East Cork in addition to the people of Cove in, the, in relation to the Cove relief roads, in relation to other issues that I have thought that I would be in a position to have made more progress on in relation to school capacity issues. There are a multitude of other different issues here that I have worked diligently on behind the scenes in an appropriate fashion with government. And at this stage, I would like to say that there are issues there. I'm unhappy with the rate of progress from the civil service and from different government departments that I've been interacting with. And mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to say it. And I okay. think, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly an issue that it deserves the fullest of intention. And I think it's a bit rich for the Department of Transport to be prioritising projects that will cost up to £10 billion, including Metro North and the Metro Link in Dublin, when projects in my constituency that are under £100 million in value were ignored in terms of their importance, 
when they really were crucial to the development of our county and the constituency of Cork East. Okay. I also wish to reference as well, Patricia, and I don't want to go without mentioning it, what happened in relation to the N73 and funding being pulled is something I have been working on in the last number of weeks. There was another local representative was banging a saucepan relation to that issue, and I would like to say I'm acutely aware of it. I've been working with TII with the Department of Public Expenditure to ensure that the funding is put in uh, that was pulled in relation to the N73 works that needed to be done to improve safety. My own car was badly damaged on that road uh, over a year ago, uh, and I would like to see money being spent in that area as well, and it's important to say that that is a top priority for me. Okay, one wonders if we could get a Ryder Cup uh, to go to a photo, would it help? Because it was interesting to see in in the National Development Plan, they're going to facilitate the delivery of the Adair bypass element in time for the Ryder Cup in uh, 2027. James, uh, we will speak again in the meantime. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. You can hear, can't you, the disappointment. You just feel so let down. That is East Cork, Fianna Fáil, Dáil Deputy uh, James O'Connor. 1850-333-103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Cork today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Community and voluntary groups are being urged to make their voices heard by joining the Cork County Public Participation Network. To find out more, I'm joined from the PPN by Sandy McGrorty. Good morning to you, Sandy. Morning, Patricia. And, and you're very welcome. I suppose, can you start by outlining what the Cork County Public Participation Network is all about? Well, actually, Patricia, it's very related to your conversation you were having there with Councillor O'Connor. Um, Deputy O'Connor. Deputy, sorry, he's he's the TD. Um, So most people don't maybe realise that um, at a county council level, communities have have a seat at county council committees and their voices can be heard um, in in committees such as your roads and transport committee. Um, So they can sit around the table with county councillors and council staff, you know, heads of of the, the roads and transport directorate and actually kind of, give their input um, as to the needs of communities at a local level. And they can really talk then about what's happening in their area. Yeah, it's really about getting that kind of bottom-up input from communities. Now, these committees don't really deal with the the capital projects, let's say, coming from central government or the policies such as the National Development Plan. But there's lots of local policies that are developed in these committees. Um, and, and it's so important that communities are, are inputting into these local policies. I mean, something, you know, let's take, for example, the Roads and Transport Committee. Um, policies around parking, you know, footpaths, pedestrian crossings, which, which roads need, you know, maintenance around the county. And all of that input kind of feeds into this, these policies. And they can ultimately feed it back up to the, to the national government level. Um, so really the, the PPN is there to facilitate this. We have 37 community seats in all of these committees, committees such as the Housing Committee. So you, you mentioned earlier on about vacant homes across the county. We all know there's so many of these vacant homes, you know, rurally in our town centres, our villages. And it's the communities who know where these are best. They know the situation. So really in the Housing Committee, you'd have, you know, a, a voice really for communities to say, you know, which which homes really need to be looked at. 
and I know Cork County Council plans to focus on that going going forward. And um, so yeah, we've thirty seven seats basically to fill. Um, so you're so you're looking now for nominations to fill those thirty seven seats on Absolutely. on the committees. Yeah, so we're we're having a call for nominations, and um, that that will close on the fifth of November. So it's open really to community groups and and um, people that are involved in community groups, and they can nominate themselves to sit on these committees and to represent their communities. Um, so and what, what, when you say community groups, what are we talking about here? Community councils, tidy towns oh groups? Oh my God, yeah. We have about a thousand groups already on our network and they range anything from your community councils, tidy towns, arts groups, theatre groups, um, environmental groups, social inclusion groups. So we've, we've a whole load of community groups. So basically, if you're, if you're a group that's kind of running on a voluntary basis, not for profit, um, at a community level then you're free to join and joining is free. And not only do you get to elect representatives onto these committees, but also um, we really are the kind of linchpin between the county council and communities. It's great. It's it's great. And I mean, I think the one thing the pandemic, Sandy, has really shown us is how important those local voluntary community groups, how important they are and, and were. Honestly, Patricia, I mean, in, in my job, I meet them so many times, like these really like amazing community groups that, as you say, over the pandemic have kept things going. They've continued to run their meals on wheels. They've been delivering meals directly to people's homes. You know, they've been involved in the COVID response. We are very lucky in Cork County that we have so many incredible community groups and, and the county council, you know, supports them. And there's a lot of funding and grants that the council give out to community groups throughout the year. But what we hear a lot is that like some community groups and communities are very good at accessing the funding and they're thriving. But other communities and community groups are struggling. And, and you know, you've got small villages where, you know, community groups were reliant on the church gate connection and that kind of stopped over COVID. Mm. And, so the council does have grants for them and, and we basically want to make sure that those community groups get access to grants and funds. And that they're, so yeah, they're, we, they're aware of, what, of what's out there. But I think the yeah. most important thing is the, the PPN, it gives all of those local community groups a chance to play a part in, in policy and even in decision making by being on the committees. Yeah, it's, it's actually an incredible opportunity for community groups to really have their voices heard. And to sit around the table with your county councillors and your kind of high level council staff. Um, and, you know, these committees will, will meet a few times a year and, and they can really, you know, get their voices heard and represent their Brilliant. communities. Brilliant. How can people find out more and how can people get involved? Yeah, so, like, um, as I said, any community group can join for free. Go onto our website at corkcountyttpn.ie. You can easily join. Um, we run free training as well for community groups at the moment. There's three training coming, trainings coming up um, around fundraising, around social media for community groups, GDPR for community groups. So we really try to support community groups to build their capacity to, you know, to really grow um, and network with each other. So, yeah, they can just go onto our website and they can join very easily online for free and you know, they can also give us a call. All our details are there on corkcountyppn.ie. Okay, listen, we wish you luck with it, Sandy, and thanks a million for joining us on the programme. Thanks, Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Sandy McGrorty there of the Cork County PPN. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
I want to go to a breaking news story and Paul Byrne, the Southern Correspondent with Virgin Media News, uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Patricia. And, and, uh, Paul, this is to do with a search for a man who put a knife to the throat of a taxi driver. Yeah, it didn't happen last night. It didn't happen in the early hours of this morning. It happened in the last hour or two. Um, I mean, I've been talking to a number of taxi drivers and it should said they said it just goes to show what they're up against when they're out there trying to make a living, trying to earn a crust or put bread and butter on the table. But this taxi driver, he's a man in his 60s, described as salt of the earth, someone who wouldn't harm a fly, picked up a fare earlier this morning somewhere in Cork. And my understanding is that he dropped off the passenger uh, around the Ballyvillan Fire Brigade station uh, in, in area, uh, the Fire Brigade station in Ballyvillan. And before he knew it, uh, the culprit, the head on board, had put a knife to his throat and started demanding money. Um, it's unclear whether the uh, culprit got any money at this stage, but as you can imagine, it must have been a frightening ordeal for the taxi driver, uh, a very quiet, soft-spoken man uh, in his 60s. That's a frightening, frightening thing, as as you say, to happen in broad daylight as well. I mean, just the, the, the cheek of the guy thinking, you know, that he just it justifies uh, belief. Is, is he all right? Is the taxi driver all right, do you know? Yeah, I, I understand that he didn't uh, receive any injuries, That, uh, but he is said to be extremely shaken and shook up and frightened following the horrific ordeal. He's uh, currently... Uh, talking with detectives at Watercourse Road Guard the station where he's uh, giving as much information as he can to the, the investigating officers. Obviously they'll be forensically examining the car they'll be looking at CCTV footage from where the fare was picked up the route they travelled and to their final destination. I don't know if there's any CCTV in the uh, the taxi driver's car. Some cars do have that installed yeah. but um, CCTV will play a vital role in this and my understanding is that the guy, like he wasn't masked or ballied up or anything like that um, that you know he, he got into the car asked to be dropped to such and such a place and uh, when he was getting out then he put the knife to the taxi driver's throat he's described as being in his 30s low size uh, extremely dirty looking and wearing a dirty white jacket now look I can't be for certain but if I was a betting man here we had someone who was probably coked out of his head or on, on some sort of heroin uh, gear, you know, maybe after uh, some gear, or looking to get his hands on something and, and in desperately needing cash. But it's shocking what some people will resort to, you know, to, to get their hands on cash. You know, they just don't give a shite about who, who, who they take from. Um, you know, if, if they want money, they'll hold it up. And these taxi drivers, who both men and women, who I genuinely have great admiration for because they're out there working morning, noon and night. There's so many taxi drivers, uh, taxis on the road. It's extremely difficult for them to make a living in this day and age. And, you know, you've interviewed them about the, the, the money they make. I've done so many yeah. stories. You've fellas and girls going out there at six o'clock in the morning and by lunchtime they'd be lucky if they have 10 or 15 quid in their pocket after paying for their juice and their tax and insurance. They're really, really up against it. And more so now that we're living in an environment which is extremely dangerous because you just don't know who you're picking up. And if it wasn't for taxi drivers, you and I and others and all your listeners this morning sometimes wouldn't get home from the post yeah, late yeah, at night. Yeah, you're, yeah, you know, you're we so right. You're so right. It's, it's a service. So it's a yeah. service we all desperately need and and use. But what, what struck me when I heard your story um, coming into us, Paul, was it's the vulnerability of these taxi drivers. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you know, in 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 the in England, you have the the glass between the driver and the the passengers, and I know in in Cork, satellite had installed glass between the driver and the the passengers on in on account of the pandemic. But honestly, I think it's coming to the stage where there'll have to be like. The, the bus drivers have glass surrounding them. They'll have to be kind of se- sectioned off in in more ways than one fr- from the from the passengers. They're they're dealing with all sorts of people every day of the week. You know, they could be picking up the the the, the fellow who who doesn't look the best, and they could be picking up a fellow uh, in a short and tie. But the short and tie fellow can be just as yeah, bad yeah. if he's after a few points or after taking a, a line of coke or whatever the case would be. You know? And as so, you say, as you've outlined, there's slim pickings out there, so every fare is a fare. Yeah, honest to God. And I know, like, a lot of the drivers are very experienced and sometimes they can judge, you know, who's going to be messy and who's not going to be messy. But sometimes drivers are so desperate to make a living, to keep their car in the road, to feed their family, that they might be forced to take a chance. And sometimes, unfortunately, that chance doesn't pay off. All right, well, hopefully that... I'm glad to hear that he wasn't injured, but it's the psychological effect and damage that this will have on this poor man for, for many years to come, Paul. Yeah, sixty in his 60s, you know, yeah, it could have an effect him. on anybody, whether they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s. But, you know, again, I suppose the older they are, the, the more vulnerable they are. And uh, it's extremely it's, it's sad. And, okay. and if anybody is, saw anything, Ballyvillan Garden Yeah, you know, yeah, Ballyvillan area, again, the CCTV. But you know what? This guy, you know, who, who, who carried out the attack this morning, he could be out there still on the road looking for... Um, money, he's in his 30s, low size uh, extremely dirty looking, wearing a dirty white jacket, and look look, the, you know, again if, if any drivers are on the road this morning looking at someone that matching that description, just call the guards and say yeah. look, we, there's a fellow there that might be of interest to you, you yeah. know. Well done Well done, okay Paul, listen, thank you for that Cheers. and uh, thanks for joining us, that's Paul Byrne Sutherland, correspondent with Virgin Media News, and we pass on our very best wishes to that taxi driver in the city and, and hope that he will be uh, okay as Paul said he's speaking with the Gardaí speaking with detectives at the moment to try to see if they can catch the person who pulled a knife to his uh, throat in the last hour 1850 some of your uh, thoughts and comments coming into the programme a number of people reacting to my chat with Deputy James O'Connor Cork East Fianna Fáil Dáil Deputy and you could hear in James's voice there was a mixture I think of annoyance but also a mixture of sadness and a feeling that he'd been let down I think by his party and let down by the civil servants and the people who were putting the National Development Plan together because he had been promised that the in particular the Castle Martyr and Killer Bypasses would be included. He'd obviously been fighting for the upgrade on the photo road into Cove as well but that's a much bigger uh, project. He was hoping some of the smaller ones would have gotten included and then everything was going fine up to Sunday night he gets a phone call to say oh sorry James uh, the projects you've been fighting for are not going to be uh, included and you you could just feel how let down he felt I think when we interviewed him and actually a number of people are picking up on 
on that and, and on the way James spoke. Just to give you an example of some of the comments uh, in the TD, Deputy uh, James O'Connor, who spoke with you, Patricia, in the last hour, I feel is quite unusual. He challenges my scepticism about politicians. At least he has the integrity and the courage to speak out, says this listener. And the girls in Mallow says, well done to young James O'Connor for speaking so well. The best of luck to him in what he is doing. Hopefully he will be looked after and the road projects that he is calling for will be included. And Heidi said, Deputy James O'Connor, it sounds like the kind of guy we need more of to work on behalf of the people in the government. More power to him. And as he said, he's gone in now to meetings to try to see if he can get the government to change their mind and at least include Castle Martyr and Dar the Killer uh, bypass. But, you know, I asked him straight out, was it a resignation issue? And he said, yeah, it is something that he is contemplating, giving up the whip of the Fianna Fáil party. And someone else says, is, that, is he the youngest TD? Yes, he was the youngest TD in the current Dáil. He was elected at the last election for his first time out. He had been a, a councillor before that. Uh, Morris uh, says James needs to grow up this is what politics is all about and Ross says what Cork East needs badly is an old rail line is an old or the old style rail line uh, to relieve the roads it's got cycle lanes on track says Ross but what they need is a more upgraded and better rail service into East Cork thank you for that Ross 1850 also coming into is the story that we're running on the news of one of the uh, one of the Irish players not been fully, no, well, not even been fully vaccinated, not vaccinated, somebody who doesn't believe in vaccinations. Not everybody believes in vaccinations. And of course, we know they're not mandatory. William from Bushman says, those Irish players who haven't received their uh, vaccines and yet they're allowed to travel with the Irish uh, team. William feels they should be dropped from the Irish team, especially with the government backing this Irish soccer team. We can't go into a restaurant without producing a COVID certificate, yet we've got some of the players on our national team who are travelling around the world and they are not uh, vaccinated. Well, I'm assuming if they are travelling around the world, they'll have to have negative PCR tests before they'll be able to get on a plane. But would others agree with William that if you want to play for your country, you want to represent your country, you want to get on a plane, you want to travel around, should you be dropped from the team if you're not fully vaccinated. Your thoughts welcomed on that. 1850 We were talking about the four-day working week in the last hour and then Barry was putting forward the reasons why he felt people in trades and in certain sectors four-day working week is never going to work for them because you're always going to need people on call or always going to need people to go into work and that led to me having a chat with him about the trades in particular and the shortage and builders and all of the trades plasterers, plumbers, electricians block layers right across the board we have a shortage, we have a problem in this country and he says you know something needs to be done done about it without ever talking about a four day a working week and then I was saying in the hospitality sector it is the very the, it's the very same as well we've got many sectors who are scrambling to get staff I mean if 
Barry even mentioned if you look at most shops will have a sign in the window looking for full and part-time staff. Well, one listener says on the hospitality industry and indeed other sectors, uh, would if they would be interested in increasing workers' salaries, there would be no shortage of staff. It is not compulsory for employers to pay employees the minimum wage. So this listener feels that the reason people aren't going into work is because of the minimum wage. But I suppose on the flip side of that, small businesses, whatever about the larger businesses, but small businesses will say they'd love to be paying their workers more, but they literally can't afford to pay their workers more. The cost of doing business in this country is extremely expensive when you take in all of the overheads and while employers would love to be giving employees more, many of them, many of them can't. Now, will there be some who could be paying more and they're not? Absolutely. But the majority, I think, I feel particularly the smaller smaller shops and even the cafes and some within the hospitality sector, they, they give as much as they can afford to give while still trying to make some kind of a profit and in some cases just uh, break even. 1850 Um Was there another one on this issue? I thought there was another one on... Um, no. OK. Uh, and then just on different issues coming in to us. This is... Now... I'm, I'm, I'm slow and I'm deliberately not going to name the company or, or anything here for obvious reasons because I don't because I don't want to identify somebody and we could be wrongly identifying somebody. But uh, Phil, one of our listeners, was on to us to say that he bought a, an item, some goods in the United Kingdom that were delivered by courier. And when the courier arrived, there was charges on the package. Obviously, this is all to do with Brexit and some some companies in the UK, when you're buying online, as you're checking out, you'll pay the taxes and the VAT and whatever else. And it's all done as you are doing your transaction. But other companies, not in a position to do that. And it's when the courier arrives, you've got to pay whatever's due to revenue on that package. You've got to pay the courier. So Phil ended up in that uh, position back in June. And when the courier arrived Phil paid the guy in cash had a little bit of a chat paid and that was it and off the driver went and Phil went went about his Murray way lo and behold the courier company has now contacted Phil to say you never paid those charges and that they now want him to pay the charges now the thing was Phil paid in cash and he didn't get a receipt from the driver. Now, he was wondering if we, he was, he's giving us details of the driver and seeing if we could call it out in the hope that the driver would remember him and would, you know, give Phil a call and try to explain uh, what happened. I mean, firstly, listen, you can pay in cash. There isn't an issue with that. But I can't believe, Phil, that you didn't get a receipt. And I'm not saying that the driver has made off with the money or anything like that. But somewhere between you handing the cash over and the driver getting back to the depot, somewhere along there, it hasn't got logged that you've actually uh, paid but anyway, we said we'd just give it out to see has that happened to anybody else where you pay a courier amounts that's owed when the package is delivered and you didn't get a receipt and did the company come back looking for the money? Your thoughts welcomed on that. 1850 C103 Jobs. A customer care representative is wanted for a Mallow betting shop. You email bbookmakers at gmail.com. Staff are wanted for immediate start in a blind factory in McCroom. She is your contact at 0264-3579. Newmarket Credit Union, they've got a vacancy for a cashier. Now, it's to cover a maternity leave. 
you send your CV, please, to d.barrett at newmarketcu.ie. And please note the closing date is this Friday, the 8th of October. And an early years practitioner is wanted to work under the AIM model. It's 15 hours per week. It's in the North Cork area. CV to cleverkidssbm at gmail.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Harry McGann, who is a young former referee now. We spoke with him back in 2019 when he was he was forced to give up a job he loved doing as a referee but we're having difficulty uh, getting through to them but uh, John Paul is going to press on with it but the reason that we were asking him to join us on the programme was the soccer match had to be abandoned here in Cork last weekend and the reason that it had to be abandoned was that the referee walked off because of the amount of abuse that the referee was receiving and lo and behold on the front page of the Echo today they are running a piece saying that there are many matches that have been forced to cancel because of the abuse by uh, referees and because of that the organisation that represents referees there is a society it's the Irish Soccer Referee Society uh, they have got together with uh, they they've, are, are asking for a zero tolerance approach to be adopted across all grades of grassroots soccer in Cork in relation to what they say is the unacceptable behaviour at games. Now, it's by players, it's by coaches and it's also by supporters. So I'm interested in your thoughts if you have, because this goes right down to schoolboy level as well. So I'm interested in your thoughts if you've been at a match and you have noticed the abuse given to uh, referees. Now I'm told uh, Harry McGann, a former referee we've uh, sorted out the problems and we've managed to track him down. Good morning to you Harry. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, You're welcome. Now the reason we invited you today was it seems there was a soccer match abandoned in Cork at the weekend and the incident has triggered a reaction from clubs all around who they're condemning what had happened and they're very much getting behind the, the referee. But you're a former youth referee. We've spoken with you in the past about this abuse that happens on the pitch. And I mean, it got so bad for you in 2019. It, you were forced to give up something that I'm right in saying you really enjoyed doing. Yeah, look, unfortunately, it refereed for, for a lot of, uh, you know, I was 15, 16, 17, up until I think I was about 18 or 19, I refereed. So a lot of my teenage years were spent involved in the game. I played football as a kid. Um, and was forced out of it through an injury so I decided that I was going to stick to the refereeing and yeah unfortunately the abuse just got to an extent where I had a, a manager swing at me uh, attempt to try to hit me at one stage and I just decided that I wasn't going to get involved in it for uh, long enough to wait to see if somebody did actually hit me or follow through on one of their threats so uh, yeah unfortunately I was, I was kind of pushed out of the game in the end which is dreadful with something that you had such a passion about. And you you were talking about schoolboys, wasn't it? Schoolboy matches you were refereeing? Yeah, the game I had somebody swing at me at was a under 10 football game. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. The one thing when I was thinking about this, uh, Harry, uh, yesterday, and I knew you were going to be joining us. I mean, that is what, what is happening 
at underage level surely is not good for the sport for children to be witnessing that type of behaviour. Oh yeah, look, I think, uh, to be honest, from my own point of view, I think it, it's really disheartening from the point of view that we're trying to push more kids to, to get involved in these sports and to get involved and get out of the house and, and to do something positive and active. And I think, as you said, what's going to happen here eventually is the kids aren't going to want to be around uh, games where there's parents and managers hurling and screaming abuse at what should be an uncompetitive and, and enjoyable experience for the kids. You know, it's, it's not about who wins or who loses, really. It's more about the kids getting out meeting new people and getting active. And unfortunately, it's, it's just been taken to a level now where parents and managers, unfortunately, seem to want to take their anger out of referees in the middle of a football pitch on a Saturday morning. And I just don't think it's right um, and I don't think it's being talked about enough. And who do you feel are worse? Is it the parents or the, or the coaches? Oh, I think it's a mix of both. It, it tends to be if, if a parent is screaming on and nobody's saying anything to them, that there's a general acceptance then on the sideline from everybody. You know, it's, it's never usually one individual. And if it is, it's rare. Um, it's usually a handful of parents who are, are, are get behind it and then the manager. Um, I, I, I'm always quite surprised by it, to be honest, because from a manager point of view, they're, they're responsible for the well-being and safety of the children, you know. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that anybody would allow a manager who who threatens to meet a referee in the car park or threatens violence or abuse towards a referee, look after their child for, for a Saturday afternoon. It just, it just seems a bit bizarre to me. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's everybody at this rate. I think it's getting worse. And would you have seen other parents or other coaches calling out somebody to say, you know, stop, stop saying that, stop doing that and calling out the abuse? On some occasions, yes, you, you do have parents who, who would look at a manager or tell a manager that they, they need to quiet down or be a bit more respectful, and, and it's always appreciated, and I think it's a, it's a good sign. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen often enough, and as a result, as I said, there's managers who are threatening all sorts of behaviour um, during football matches. So I think, to be honest, the, the only way we really are going to address this is if people speak up on the sideline. Yeah. They see something happening, they say something, and they act on it before it gets out of hand. Yeah, you need the good people to speak up and, and call it out uh, for for exactly uh, what it is. And actually, the front page of the Echo newspaper today is running with a piece from the Irish Soccer Referees Society, the Cork branch, who are calling out what's happening uh, here in Cork. And they say one of the main contributing factors to the loss of refu- re- referees and the difficulty in recruiting and retraining new referees is the treatment and abuse that Matt's officials are subject to at all age groups in all levels of grassroots football by players, officials and uh, spectators. We are going to get to a stage, if we're not already there, where matches won't be able to go ahead because of a referee shortage. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, to be honest, we might already be there already. Um, I, I've heard stories of games not going ahead all across the country or they're not being enough officials to, to give a right amount for a game. So I think we have probably reached the stage where there actually isn't enough referees for matches now. And unfortunately, it will get worse and people will realise that come Saturdays and Sundays when they're supposed to be going out to play football, that it's not going ahead because, unfortunately, nobody wants to referee the game because it's not worth their time and it's not worth the abuse. And by the way, if parents or coaches are, and are spectators or whoever is involved in this abuse, if they're identified as abu- abusing the ref, how are they dealt with? Are they banned from the sideline? Are they fined? 
it's, it's usually a mix of fines and bans. And um, I've made comments in the past, and I stand by this that I don't think there should be. I think there should be a zero tolerance approach to this. Um, I think we've reached the stage now, now where the, the short term bans and, and the small fines aren't enough, and they're not uh, disincentivizing people enough to remain quiet and to behave properly on sidelines. So I think what what was a couple of you know fines and a couple of bans here and there, um, at one stage needs to be you know if you're going to do this, you no longer have a place in the game, and there needs to be a zero tolerance approach to really get it out. Yeah, and I know that the the Cork branch of the Irish Soccer Referees Society they've issued a directive to all their members across all the leagues in Cork to adopt a zero tolerance uh, approach and if that yeah. means abandoning the match it means abandoning the match which is unfair then on the players who are not involved in the abuse Yeah look it's, it's not fair in any child who wants to go out and play a game of football with their friends the weekend that they have to listen to you know abuse uh, and threats being hurled at people um, it's not what they get involved in it's not what they want to be involved in and, and it's not it's not right so yeah I, I think unfortunately that is what has to be done to stop this but hopefully in the long term it would mean that less and less this happens and more games go ahead. So, so do you think since you resigned in, uh, I'm right, it was 2019, wasn't it? Yeah. Do you think the situation has got worse instead of better? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's getting progressively worse. I'm hearing more and more stories and I think it's becoming more common now, whereas I think in the past it was a sporadic story here and there. It seems to be every weekend now across the country. Have you taken up a new hobby? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I stick to a bit more of a spectator now rather than the referee. I think there's uh, less hassle than that. Okay. All right. Listen, pleasure as always to talk to you, Harry. Stay safe. Thanks, and thanks a million for joining us. Uh, bye bye. That is uh, Harry McGann, who was himself a former schoolboy referee, forced uh, to give up something that he really loved doing and forced to give it up because of uh, abuse. Uh, your thoughts welcomed. If you have a son or daughter involved, this is in soccer. Don't know if it happens. Does it happen at GAA matches? I certainly don't think it happens at rugby matches. There's always such a respect level. Certainly in the adult game when you're watching rugby matches, there's this great respect level for for referees. It's such a difference. Rugby, certainly between soccer, is is there abuse? Does abuse happen at GAA matches as well? Your thoughts welcomed on it. 1850-333-103. Listen, says, what about referees that are wrong and one-sided? Well, even if a referee is wrong, that's his, you know, you'd like to think referees are trying to be as fair as possible. But even if they're wrong, they don't deserve to be abused and threatened. But, you know, somebody coming at you with a clenched fist or somebody threatening to meet you afterwards outside in the car park. That's, that certainly shouldn't be happening. And someone else, Michael Skibarine is saying uh, that he thinks referees should have v- VAR. I don't know what the, the uh, VAR, that's is the, the television. Um, in in every sport like they do in soccer in England uh, referees only have two eyes so something like this uh, even if it does take up time at least you get the right decision like in uh, rugby then supporters will not get so animated like yeah, it's like the video uh, when they go to the to kind of the, 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 the what do they call them the third referee and it comes up on the screen it, listen Michael that's all well and good when, you've, when you're at a big match because you imagine at a local schoolboy I mean the match the last match that Harry did that forced him to resign was an under 10s 
where the coach came at him with clenched fists and was going to take to take him out. I mean, I don't know if they could have a VAR or any kind of video recording available at underage matches. But yes, if it, if it was there, it certainly would point out for once and for all if a decision was wrong or right. 1850-333-103. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now, part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie Now we don't often get to review children's books here on the programme but when a gorgeously illustrated book with a lovely gentle tale about embracing your differences arrived on our desks. We just had to speak with the author. The author is Emer O'Neill who's of Irish Nigerian heritage and children will know Emer well because she was the PE presenter on RTE's Home School Hub during lockdowns and Emer now joins me. Good morning to you Emer. Good morning. You're you're very welcome uh, to the programme. Your book is called The Same But Different and the main character is uh, all about Little Emer. Is Little Emer you as a child? uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's (laughs) believing believing you were different to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of based it around me and how I felt when I was when I was younger, really, I suppose. Little Emer, I... I remember, you know, being kind of really sure that I was, was different. And, and I think I was about five when I realized this. Um, and I didn't really know why initially, but it became clear that it was my skin and, you know, my hair and that I just looked like completely different to everybody else around me. Um, and I think that realization was, was tough to kind of, kind of deal with and um, I don't know I suppose now I have two kids of my own and uh, my son is um, half Jamaican a quarter Irish and a quarter Nigerian Okay that's uh, a lovely mix It's an amazing <laughs> mix like come on like, it's unreal um, but you know there still aren't any books out there you know like that are Irish based you know we we need our own resources um, because everything that I, I go to find maybe to help me talk to him about certain things to do with racism, it's all American. And so it's been one of my things that I'm just like, we will have Irish resources. So we've got a kid's book, you know, that can help moms and dads and um, carers and mentors and teachers start talking about this. Because even though the word racism is not mentioned in the book at all, you know, you, 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 you get the gist, you know, because I talk about my skin and I talk about my hair and I talk about being different. But I also have different characters in there. Like I have I have a boy with a cochlear implant. Um, I have a girl wearing a hijab. I have, you know, somebody in a wheelchair. There's someone in a wheelchair. Yeah. So it, it, really, the gist of the book is actually, like you said, all about being different, being unique, and how beautiful that is, and how we should embrace embrace that and embrace others' differences as well. So I feel like a lot of kids can relate to the book in some kind of way, no matter what, you know, because at, at some point we've all felt different. And as I say, when it landed on my desk, I mean, the one thing that popped out was the, the illustrations. Tell me about Debbie, your, yeah. illust- your illustrator. Oh, wow, she's amazing. She's um, Indonesian. I wanted 
a, a person of colour to to illustrate the book. Um, and anybody that was in Ireland that was in illustration was just out the door with work. Um, so I had to go to look in England and I looked in the US and everybody was just up to their eyeballs. And that's great. I'm delighted to hear this, you know. But anyway, we found we found Debbie and I think it was meant to be because um, her stuff just blew me away. And uh, I think it's just so beautiful, the illustration and the colours, like the palette that she used, the colours are so vibrant. Um, like my, my son brought the book out to his friends before it had actually been released. I thought that was really cute, by the way. <laughs> so he was proud as punch. He's like, I'm like, where are you going with the book? He's like, I'm going out to show the lads. It's <laughs> like okay, that's so cute. And uh, but, uh, the lads all loved it. <laughs> like, like, yeah. You know what? I went out after a while, because um, of course, I mean, they are my demographic. So yeah. I'm like, well, what do you think? And some of them were like 11 and 12, and I would kind of say it's probably it's it's primary school level book, you know, maybe up to maybe first class. But I've had adults say that, like, I bought the book myself. I really liked it. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I don't want to put an age on it, though. Um, but the, one of the boys said, it's a really good message and it's so important. And then the other one, another, another boy goes, I just love all the, the drawings. Like, they're really nice. And, and this is, yeah, and it'll start conversations. And that's really what, the, what the, the there's a message, but it's to, exactly it's, right. it's to, and because we live in such a multicultural society today, Emer. We do. Uh, we so do. We are, like we are, we are so diverse, but that diversity is just—it's not represented across the board. It's not represented in education, in you know, in government, in our guardi. It's just—it's just not. And we need to do better at that. It's just one of those things. And I've tried to do as much as I can on my side. I've done work with um, uh, Olympic Ireland with the don't hashtag don't go go by campaign um, I helped write um, an anti-racism module how to prevent it and how to deal with it with the INTO the National Teachers Organisation for Primary Schools and it's a module to train teachers to step back uh, recognise their own unconscious bias their own privilege and then to see how um, diverse they are within their classroom within their school is it something they do every day or is it just during Black History Month or you know and this is like diversity mainly we're we're talking about racism but I mean it's across the board for me it's it's a fight for minority groups period you know and and that's so important that everybody is represented everybody should be able to see themselves represented somewhere absolutely Um, you know absolutely and I think your book is going to be a fantastic tool for teachers to use in in the classroom I I really think it is and I mentioned you were the the kids certainly will know you from the the home (laughs) school hub was that great fun to do (laughs) that was unbelievable so they came to me and they said hey do you think you could be the Irish Joe Wicks? And I don't know if you know Joe Wicks. <laughs> I do. Buddy, the, the body coach, yeah. So I'm like, you know what? Yes, I can. <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I'll stand on my head, I will, because <laughs> I was just so delighted to be involved. It was absolutely amazing. Like, I knew all the, the moon tours already because I'd been watching it at home with my son. Okay. So when I went in, I'm like, hey, Ray, hey, Kina, <laughs> hey, John. And they're like... Who are you? <laughs> um, and was that was that your first uh, journey into television? Yeah, like I've done, I would, I've done a bit of modelling. So I would, um, I've been on Ireland AM model clothes, and I've done a bit of acting. But yeah, it, that's kind of the 
biggest, absolutely biggest thing I've ever done. But I do, I do drama. Like I love doing pantos and musicals, and so I do a lot of stuff with that. And I sing. So I'm such a multi-talented. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and you are, you, but you years. are, you are a PE teacher. I'm a PE teacher. Yeah, I'm teaching twelve years. So I always describe being a teacher as you know, performing. Like, I'm on stage every day in front of those kids. Like, whatever's going on in my life, I've got to park that at the door and I've got to be ready to go. Like, let's go kids, are we ready? You know, I have to be hyped or else they're not going to be bothered. So, you know, I feel like I've been in front of the camera my whole life, really, you know, that way. And actually... The, the kids, you know, you don't get eye rolls from the from the camera, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's re- that's really welcome. And you've moved it now onto another level because you've gone from the homeschool hub to the Today Show. Stop, honestly, it's like what's going on. I'm actually I'm in Cork at the moment because we just finished the show yesterday. Um, I was in there Monday and Tuesday and uh, stayed the night. And I'm just I got recognised last night. Can you believe that? Yay. I was absolutely. Buzzing. It was the, there was a group of women and they were out with their husbands and stuff and, and one of them turned to me and goes, Emer I'm like, obviously I don't know anybody in court, really. Yeah. So I'm uh, like they all they are they, they, they all know you and they will know you even more. So you're Monday and oh, Tuesday. Stuff. You're with you're yeah. with uh, you're with uh, Dahi. We yeah. all love Dahi here in the program. So oh, say say hi to Dahi and the rest of the gang. I Listen, will, your book course. is delightful and as they say, available in all good bookshops. It is, is indeed, it? yeah. Is it? It's brilliant. It's, it's, and you can get it online too. Uh, Dubray, Eason's, it's on Amazon, Bookstation, Waterstone. So, yeah. It's and, beautiful. Um, if anybody wants any information about anti-racism um, courses or anything like that, uh, do please get in touch with me. And the best way to reach me is on Instagram. And that's Emer O'Neill 14. I, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and any feedback, of course, about the book will be brilliant. So, Fantastic. Good luck with it, Emer. Thanks a million for Thanks joining so us. Bye bye. That well is uh, the lovely Emer O'Neill. The book is called The Same But Different. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Now, some reaction to young Harry McGann, who joined us when we were talking about what's happening on... Harry was talking about what's happening on soccer pitches at all levels and the abuse of referees. And I was just opening it up saying, does it happen in other sports? Would you see it happening much where the ref gets abused, say, at a GAA uh, match? Some reaction on that, including Jim says, Patricia, I heard a story once of a lady who was abusing the referee after a match and she told him, you'll never referee a match in Croke Park with the way you refereed that match. And his reply was, Madam, you'll never be a rose in the Rose of Tralee either. <laughs> and then walked away. OK, uh, so now another referee says, Trish, I'd love to come on air and tell you just how bad it is. Now, I don't know if this is as a soccer referee or a GAA uh, referee, uh, but unfortunately I can't because I need to protect my identity. Goodness me, that must be bad. And then Mick says, the abuse happens in GAA as well, Patricia. The worst of it, according to Mick are the mammies. They'll get on to the selectors, they'll get on to the coaches. Why is my Johnny and Jimmy not uh, playing? So they won't just abuse the referee, they'll also abuse the selectors and the coaches. God, it's a bit of a thankless job, isn't it, if you're getting abuse from... And is it more the mammies than the daddies? According to Mick, it's the mammies is who he has witnessed giving all of the abuse. And another listener says, I can assure you, Patricia, that it is just as bad in the world of GAA. 
at the moment, the lack of referees is often leading to games simply being called off. The old saying, who would want to be a referee? And to be honest, that's a very true saying. The boards need to invest in referees and make sure they are protected at all times. I've yet to meet a ref who went out to intentionally referee a bad game. And that's a really good point. And I know even when we watch some of, say, the All-Irelands or a Munster final or whatever, and inevitably on the Monday, if the if the referee decisions has gone against the county, we'll have people all complaining about the referee. But that is a good point. No one intentionally goes out the referees as were players obviously can have a bad game but they don't intentionally do it so that's a really valid point from that text so thank you for that who says the future for refs is bleak with nothing coming through coming through so while we've been specifically looking at the soccer referee uh, issue because that's what's getting a lot of attention at the moment and they're having a problem with lack of referees and they have a number of referees who are due to retire they have a number of referees who are leaving because of the abuse that the the soccer because that group that I mentioned the group of kind of an association of soccer players uh, the Cork branch are saying that they simply don't have enough. I think there's 75 referees for soccer available to cover all the games in Cork every, every weekend and because they don't have enough, several leagues have been forced to uh, cancel. So they reckon something needs to be done. And there's a text to reckon it's going to be the same and it is the same within GAA. People don't want to. It's, it's, it sounds to me like it's an absolutely thankless job. And whatever about it being a thankless job, that can be bad enough. But a thankless job where you were at risk also of being abused really is something Something that, and most people do it as a hobby. You know, I think they get they get expenses. I mean, you never you're not going to make a livelihood out of being a referee. You just get your expenses to just get covered. But certainly, yeah, it is looking like something will have to be done. Thank you for those comments into eighteen two oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. And I can see gardening questions coming in for Peter. Thank you for those because uh, we will be getting to Peter in this hour on the program. Now, remember Phil, the gentleman who contacted us about he's had an issue with a courier. He got a package delivered from the UK back in June and when the package arrived there was duties owed on it obviously because of Brexit and he said he paid in cash. Now unfortunately he didn't get a receipt and lo and behold the courier company has come back to say you owe duties and you didn't pay and blah 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 and he was wondering if we could give out the details of the driver to see if we could somehow that the driver would be listening and that the driver might contact him and they'd be able to sort out the issue but he says he definitely paid in uh, cash. A number of people are pointing out and it's something I should have thought of when I read out the text saying surely a courier arriving and you have to pay excess costs, excise duties, whatever it is. Surely the policy of the courier company is that the package is not handed over without receiving the payment. And that's a really good point that a number of people have made. So I would suggest to our uh, listener who contacted us yesterday to Phil, get back on to your courier company and put that point to them. To, to prove that you paid the money on the day. OK, you should have got a receipt. There is a cautionary tale there. Make sure you get the receipt. But put that point to him. How could the courier driver have handed over the package if you didn't pay the excise uh, duties? And I'd be interested to hear what they would have to say back to you on uh, that. But thank you. There was a number of people actually texting and WhatsApped uh, to make that very same uh, point. People are still contacting us about Vodafone. When is Vodafone going to be back? It seems to be in the 
northwest area of Cork. People are saying it's been off since uh, Tuesday. John Paul, has, we've, we've banged an email out to them and we're waiting for them to come back so we still don't have a response on that. So hang in there, please. Hi, Patricia. Antisocial neighbours and constant dog barking. It seems the Gardaí and the council have no powers at all. I always understood that the council would take a very strong stance against antisocial behaviour, but I'm disappointed to report apparently not. We're living in a world now where everyone just doesn't seem to care anymore. And the good people like me and my family have to suffer. And that's from a Glanmire listener. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that the council aren't taking on board antisocial behaviour because certainly they have had a very strict policy on it. The constant barking of dogs seems to be an issue and we hear about it every now and again we'll get listeners contact us to say they're nearly gone demented with neighbours with constant barking dogs and you know I would always say when something like that happens would you have a chat with the neighbours maybe the neighbours aren't aware of it because a constantly barking dog is not a happy dog and I'm assuming that the owners of the dog have gone away have gone out to work they're away for the day whatever it is and then the dog is constantly barking which to me is you know just not a happy dog but maybe the owners are unaware of it and inevitably when I'll say to people well have you tried interacting with your neighbours to say are you aware that you know Fido is barking all day or late into the night or whatever. Most people tell me that the type of neighbours that allow their dogs to bark incessantly are not the type of people that you can approach. So it really is a a tricky one. But I would keep bringing it up with the with the council I don't know what the guards can do about barking uh, dogs is, is it a noise issue a nu- it's a nuisance issue more than anything I would ca- keep bringing it up with the uh, council I remember the squeaky wheel always gets the oil just keep making your complaints and get on if you have a local councillor local councillors are really good about bringing up uh, issues and keep records of every time that you contact them and just keep at them if it's if it's if it's as bad as you're saying it is in that text then you need to do something because it's it's not right as you say why should you and your family have to suffer because you're living beside antisocial neighbours and you also have the added problem of barking at dogs and then a listener who'd been abandoned listener who was on to us a few weeks ago is back on to us this is to do with the price of petrol morning Patricia imagine my shock yesterday evening when I passed my local forecourt to see the price of a litre of petrol has increased to one euro 63.9 cents God almighty it's an increase of four cents since the weekend now I text you recently you may remember my text where I was pointing out that a litre of petrol 18 months ago kind of roughly at the start of the pandemic because the price went down didn't it at the start of the pandemic was one euro and 14 cents and now it's gone in 18 months from one euro 14 cents to today €1.63 with the price of electricity going up and prices going up across the board where is it all going to end and we have a budget next week God help us all is all I can say Patricia and that comes in from a band in uh, listener and certainly you're right we do have a budget next week and don't forget part of the budget is going to be uh, in line with the Finance Act that was passed last year the carbon tax will be increased by another €7.50 for this uh, year. It'll go up to, now I never quite understand how this all works out, but it goes up to €41 Euro per tonne and it'll go up by the same amount in every budget 
until 2029. And the knock-on effect of that is it pushes up the price of petrol and diesel and home heating oil. I'm told a 60 litre tank of diesel from, I'm assuming, midnight next Tuesday night will increase by €1.48 and for a tank of petrol, a 60 litre tank of petrol will go up by €1.28. Other fuels will go up, but the, the increase for that doesn't happen until May. They always do that with the carbon tax because of the winter months and people needing to stock up on home heating oil. So they always hold off. They'll put it straight away on the petrol and the diesel, but they'll hold off on the home heating oil. But it does mean next May, when you're filling up, say, a 1,000 litre tank of home heating oil, there will be an extra €19.40 because of the €7.50 that they're putting up on the carbon tax on the budget next Tuesday. And as I say, it's going to go up by that every single year until 2029. It's just, yeah, that listener is right. It just seems to be never ending. Everything going up in price. 1850-333-103. Our lines are open. If you have a gardening question for Peter, please do your best to get it in by text or WhatsApp because the phone lines have been extremely busy today uh, for John Paul. He's literally just not getting around to all the calls. So you're better off if you need to get a question into text or WhatsApp at 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Now, we mentioned actually Meals on Wheels earlier when we were talking about the community and voluntary groups. Well, Mallow Meals on Wheels, they deliver hot, nourishing dinners Monday to Friday to the elderly, the housebound, and the infirm within the Mallow area. Now, weekday meals, they can also be arranged. And if you know somebody or you are somebody who wishes to avail of what is a fantastic service, you can ring morning times between 10am and 1 to 022 51441. Or outside of those hours, you can contact Eleanor at 087 289 Now, a meeting regarding starting a men's shed in Donora is due to be held in the Presentation Pastoral Centre on the Convent Road in Donorell tomorrow evening at half past seven. Frank Clark of the Irish Men's Shed Association will attend the meeting. He'll give a talk on how you set up a men's shed and anybody interested is welcome to come along tomorrow evening at half past uh, seven. And Johalla Vintage Club, they've got a vintage run in aid of cystic fibrosis. That's next Sunday. They'll leave Dumtariff Parish Hall with registration at 10.30 in the morning. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Just on the abuse that some referees are getting both in soccer and in GAA, John in Blackpool says, Patricia, on the abuse of referees, when I played schoolboys soccer in Ballyfehan, the referee sent the manager of one team to stand behind the ditch because of the abuse he was given. They ended up walking home after the match. They were brothers, says uh, John in Blackpool. Thanks for that, uh, John. Hi, Patricia. Recently, I gave a red card to an under-15 GAA player and it was for continuous abuse towards me during the match. After the match, I got a further feed of abuse from the player's father. 
That's from John, who is a referee. And someone else says, abuse comes from all sectors. I'm a coach. And the only time you will see a parent is when they want to give out to you. And yes, I agree with previous commentary. Women are worse. And by the way, I'm a woman myself. Thank you for that. That's texting to 0862 103 103. Keep your gardening questions coming, please, because Peter Dowdle will be joining us uh, in the final half hour of the programme. Now, there has been some upset and disappointment on the Beira Peninsula with the news that Coaction West Cork are to temporarily close their residential and respite homes in Castle. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Joining me to explain the reason behind these closures is Gubnet Nee Crowley, who is CEO of uh, Coaction. Good afternoon to you, Gubnet. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you, Thank you very much for the call. Well, you're very welcome. Now, you you issued us last week with a press release explaining that the closures are down to lack of staffing. So let's start there. How many staff uh, are you looking for and at what level of qualification would you need to keep these houses open? Okay, so what we need is we need a person who's competent and qualified at social care leader level. And, and that would mean that a person would have to have a, gr- a degree in social care. They would need to have a qualification in management. And they would also need um, experience of working in the front line in care work, as well as experience of supervision and management. And those requirements come from HICWA, the Health um, and Information Quality Authority, in terms of the qualification requirements in order for us to have centres, what we call designated centres. That's the qualification. Coming after that, then, we have social care workers. And so we would have to have a minimum of a social care leader in order to have the house, if you like, compliant with the regulations. And then to assist the leader, you would need social care workers, at least one in each house, to support the social care leader could work across the two houses. And then you would have support staff behind that again um, to support the people and the residents. And is it the social care leader level position is the trickiest one Both to fill? The social care leader and the social care workers are the particular challenges for us right across co-action indeed, not just in Beira. I suppose Beira is, is more challenging than the other areas for those particular posts. 
But we, we generally struggle um, to, to recruit successfully. We often have to go to advert two and three and four times to fill those positions right across co-action. And why is, why is Bayer? Is it the remote nature of where the houses are? I think Bayer, particularly because of its remote nature, um, the... Yeah, I think I think the remoteness is certainly a, con- a significant contributory factor. I think right across coaction, we're having recruitment challenges, and we have been for quite some time. I think the other significant uh, factor that we would attribute it to is the lack of pay parity. So coaction is a Section 39 organisation, and our funding regime and arrangements with the HSE would be different to those of Section 38 and the HSE. So we would have situations where our staff are working alongside staff employed uh, by the HSE and they would be on different pay grades and they would have different um, terms and conditions of employment. That issue. That's a particular challenge for us. That's bigger than coaction. It's not something we can... We, we, can, we, we can't fix that locally. And that's why so many of the voluntary organisations are losing staff to HSE. Indeed. But I suppose just to say, Patricia, retention isn't our biggest challenge right now. It's getting the people in um, is where we're most challenged. I think a lot of staff who work with us in Coaction, we have, we have a great staff team um, and, and a lot of our staff stay with us for a very long time. So we're very grateful to those staff who are very committed to Coaction what we do. It's getting the people in is where we, we, we're, we're most challenged at the moment. And the government, these are full-time jobs we're talking about. Um, there Some of them are full-time, Patricia, and some of them are part-time. And I suppose for many of our staff, you'll probably be aware, I suppose we're predominantly a female workforce um, and many of the staff that we would employ are um, would have young families. So not everybody wants a full-time job and I suppose because of the sector that we're in, we can facilitate part-time work for a lot of people who would prefer maybe not to be committed to a full-time job. But some of our positions, of course, are full-time as well. Okay, and I know in your press release, you, you, I mean, you, you clearly say that relocating people is very much a last resort. Absolutely, I can't Did, emphasize that enough, Patricia. Was there, was there any possibility of relocating staff? Oh, we absolutely looked at that, of course. Um, and I suppose the reality right now for co-action is that if we ro- relocate staff down to Castledown Bear, we're effectively closing a house in another area. So it's just we're, passing the we problem have staff on. Shortages across, so I suppose it's, it, it's not the solution to the problem. It's only creating a problem in another area for us. Unfortunately, it's not it's certain we would have looked absolutely at redeploying staff if that was going, if we had if we had the luxury of surplus staff in another area that, that could have been easily redeployed, we certainly would have done that. And did you just lose all of the staff that were working in those houses? Where did those staff go, the ones that were originally there? I suppose just because we're on radio, I might, I might just say it's, it's due to statutory leave entitlements that people would have. Um, so that it's temporary leave. So we haven't lost people, as in people haven't resigned, but people are are availing of their statutory leave entitlements, um, which we, of course, as an employer, have to honour. Okay. Um, so, but so, that, so they return to work. We, we are actively recruiting at the moment to try and fill those gaps. Okay. Um, but we do struggle a lot with filling those those short term absences, if you like. Is this a nationwide issue, uh, Governor? Are other service providers finding it hard to secure qualified Definitely staff? Definitely from talking to the Federation of Nas- uh, the National Federation of Voluntary Service Providers. We would have had a meeting there about two or three weeks ago now. Um, and it is um, a really, really, really national concern and a national issue, the, the recruitment challenges that we're all facing. Um, other agencies, perhaps more than ourselves, are also facing retention challenges. Um, it, our challenge is recruitment. And yes, it is, Patricia, very much a national issue at the moment. Um, very much so a national concern. 
Okay, and then some of the families contacting us, uh, mm. Governor felt your communication with families. Are, are you aware that families feel that you're not keeping them up to date with what's happening? I suppose I am to some extent, Patricia, not entirely. I suppose maybe if I can explain. I think with COVID-19, I think communication has been extremely challenged. So I think that people have, have spent 18 months largely at home with some element of service. Uh, and because of the public health restrictions, we have been restricted in our movements as managers and also staff have been restricted. Um, so I think communication has certainly been, I suppose, damaged by the pandemic. Um, I suppose on this particular situation, there was a very clear communication strategy, I suppose, discussed by the senior management team and by the board of trustees um, in terms of when and who we would communicate. So I suppose there was a communication to staff, people supporters and families all on the one day in relation to the decision. And then the chair of our board would have communicated with the local branch as well as the other branch chairs. Um, and then the other families within Bear would have been communicated with, if you like, second. It was important to speak to the people affected, directly affected first in their families. And then in terms of the other houses across co-action, we would have spoken to residents and families there about what was happening because obviously the people coming from Bear to the other houses, there needs to be a whole transition plan and a communication plan about managing that process for people as best we can. And are you back up, are all your services back up and running now to where they were before the pandemic? Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. We're actively working to get day services back up and running um, and so we're probably 80% there but we're not 100% there. Some areas like Dunmanway and which are again nearer to Cork, we're finding it easier to fill vacancies and recruit staff in those geographical areas. We're more challenged as we move further west uh, Scabreen is okay at the moment. Bantry uh, is under a lot of we're under a lot of pressure in Bantry as well as Beira. So Beira is the most challenging, and Bantry is the next most challenging area in terms of staff recruitment. Um, and respite is much slower to get back up and running because the public health restrictions aren't quite finally agreed for respite services or so in terms of numbers and the the two meter distancing and the sanitising and all the, all of the I suppose control measures. We're we're being very careful um, to try and, I suppose, still prevent um, closures and prevent outbreaks within services. Um, and, resp- and God respite, as you know, government is so, uh, so desperately needed for families. OK, and what about, have you opened up hubs instead of reopening up the centres, the way the centres were before the pandemic? Well, yes. what we did was we have hubs operating since the pandemic commenced. And some of those are working really well. And we are currently, as was, in actively consulting with families and people supported about the future of those hubs. The HSC are very supportive of those hubs, and it's very much in line with HSC strategy. It's a, it's a document called New Directions. So some of the hubs have worked out really well for people, and people really like them. Other people don't like them so much. So we're, we're right bang in the middle of saying, okay, which ones do we think are sustainable and viable, and something that people want going into the future? And um, one of the things that happened that during COVID with the hubs was that. People were missing their friends. So if I lived close to Clannacilty and say you lived close to Roscarbury, you would have gone to Roscarbury's hub and I would have stayed in Clan. Now, you, you and I might be best buddies, but because of the, the physical restrictions on movement, we couldn't be together. So people missed their friends significantly during the pandemic. Um, now that the restrictions are lifted, I might like being, you might like Roscarbury, you might have got to like it while the pandemic, 18 months on, if you like, and I might still be happy in Clan. We can now facilitate you to meet up and have gatherings together. So I suppose we're trying to weigh up the, the pros and cons of being more local to family and to your community. 
because one of the big positives of being more local to home is that you're kind of we're, we're supporting people to maintain connections and maintain relationships and be part of the community from which they actually live. So the hubs are the way forward, really, is what you're saying? Strategically and policy-wise, yes, for most people. Not for everyone, but for a lot of people, we believe, and I certainly believe, that it's a more qualitative, a more meaningful, and a more... It's a more real life, because you're up and down the street, meeting people that you know, interacting with people, and, and maybe getting a little job or doing a bit of voluntary work or being part of a local tidy towns group. You're part of your community rather than going out every morning on the bus to the big town, coming back in the evening. We're disconnecting people from their local community. Well, that's and, a and that point. seems it's not a, right It's a fair point. Go. OK, but have, I, a listener is saying, our, our, uh, is, this is back to the poor communication. Our hearts are broken as we don't know what service will be cut or stopped next. Mm. And we, the families, feel we're the last uh, to know. I can't understand why we can't all work together. And that comes in from a concerned uh, user. I'm assuming a concerned uh, parent. Are, are, you in, are you in danger of closing other services, uh, Governor? Um I think we might be in danger of reducing services rather than closures. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That, that's not but, what families but, but want to But I think here. it's important that when we communicate with people that we're clearer. I don't want to be scaremongering people, Patricia, and saying we might be closing, we're not sure. I think that's very unhelpful communication. I think we are doing our damnedest to get staff. We are trying really, really hard and there's no stone left being left unturned. And we will do everything before we start reducing our closing services. OK. And those two houses that we initially brought you on to talk about mm. in Castletown there, can you make a promise, or maybe you can't, will they reopen? There is absolutely every intention of reopening those houses as soon as we can get staff to run them. There is absolutely every intention. There is no intention. This is, this is temporary. As far as I'm concerned, this is temporary relocation of three people until we can get staff to run those houses. OK, well, that'll give comfort uh, to, the, to the families for sure. OK, listen, Goblet, I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. Thank you for that. And, and I thanks. appreciate the call, Patricia. Thanks Many for joining thanks. us. Uh, bye-bye, bye-bye. 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 That is uh, Goblet Nee Crowley, who is the CEO of uh, CoAction in West Cork. 1850 Let's take a break and we're back with Peter Dowdle answering your gardening questions. Cork Today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group from Motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. This is Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. And Peter Dowdell, the IrishGardener.com, uh, joins me. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. You're keeping well. You are. You busy? Up the walls, thank God. Up the walls, very busy. Isn't it great? Okay, lots every, of every, the whole world. The, the whole world was sent home gardening two years ago, and we've been busy ever since. Uh, which is fantastic. Actually, I I was I mentioned you on the program. I'd Aina Nilaun on. You know, Aina, who's the uh, head of yes, the Tree yes, Council, yes. and she's and we were talking about the wildflowers that people are planting, and uh, she was just saying that it has really taken off. That's the you know when we look back on this time, it's one of the things people have reconnected with nature, which is brilliant. Absolutely, and like I was saying, even on the Today Show last week, uh, bring as we're go- as many are going back to the office. Bring don't forget that connection, and don't forget what the green environment did for you over the last year and a half, and bring it to work with you. Bring house plants, start growing seeds, compost the waste in the canteen at work. You know, don't don't lose it now that we're going back to 
whatever normal is. Do you know what I mean? Let's not lose it. Let's keep with it. And tomorrow is National Tree Day. Plant trees, please. They are so important. OK, let's get straight into questions. Anne says, question for Peter, please. I have flowers in pots growing, but yesterday I've noticed the rabbits have all of the flowers eaten. Is there anything I can do to stop them? Well, this is a question we get from time to time, Trish, isn't it? And, and I have no doubt, and I hope, in fact, that people will will ring you in with their own suggestions and tips because it's they are a problem. They're a huge problem. Uh, everything from human hair to grass mowings is, is recommended. I've never, as you know, I've never used the human hair because the, the, I'd rather I don't have enough of my own to, to use, <laughs> and um, and uh, I don't like the thought of anybody else's human hair in my garden. So I'd rather the rabbits. But. Um, the you if you want to if if it's a, if it's in a big bed which I know we're talking about pots here but if it's in a in a big bed you can use lawn mowings so lawn mowings mulched are cut up you, the, the contents of your lawnmower b- b- bucket if you like around plants will stop rabbits going at them because obviously rabbits can eat grass but when they're when they're all together like that mowings it chokes them so they they inherently know not to go near it and it does work so putting lawn mowings around the plants will certainly work but in pots you might want to do that but there's a fabulous product and it's an environmentally sound product called grazers. Grazers do a range of products and they're all based uh, on a formulation of calcium. Um, I'm not a scientist, so I can't remember what that formulation is, but uh, you, you basically you mix it with water, you, you drench the plants with it. You're not putting on any gar- garden chemical or any pesticide. It actually ends up feeding the plant because it's giving it calcium. Um, but the formulation is makes the plant completely unpalatable to, to rabbits. Um, it's not just one application and walk away. Ideally, before you plant the plants, uh, about a week before you put them out, if you like, you would drench them with the grazers and then you would continue doing this for a few a few more applications. But they, it will work. And once the calcium levels have increased in the plant, the, the rabbits won't go near it. Grazers, it's called. Grazers, OK. This is, uh, if I can get back to this now, I've clicked into it and it's gone the other way. It's Oh, this is from Maura. She sent on two pictures. We just haven't had time to send them on to you to say, I have rose cuttings with little shoots after appearing uh, a few weeks ago. I grew them under a plastic tub. And what she has, she has a little flower pot and then she's got a little clear plastic tub that she put on top, almost created a little greenhouse uh, out of it. And um, they've, 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 uh, they've little shoots on them now. She's wondering, what do I do with them now? Do I move them inside? I don't have a greenhouse uh, what do I do with them? It's great. That's absolutely great. She's created, as you say, a little mini greenhouse. Yeah. She's using them as kind of like mini cloches. So it, it retains moisture and heat inside. It's an ideal way. It's like a mini propagator. Uh, the answer to the question, what to do now? Nothing really. The, the, obviously, she says she, don't have a, she doesn't have a greenhouse, so she can't move them inside. But roses will be fine. Even ones like that, if they're producing new shoots, they've obviously developed a root system as well. Now, it's juvenile yet, but it still should be absolutely perfect in terms of frost and cold. So the, I suppose the most important thing to keep an eye on I would take the lids off it if she hasn't already uh, and let it expose to the weather now before we get into the winter, let it acclimatise. Um, most important thing then is is that the pots don't get saturated, which they may over the winter. So if they're going to be outside, which as I say is fine, uh, just maybe raise them up uh, just so that the, so that the, any excess rainwater can drain away because obviously the root system won't be filling the pot yet, uh, so it may hold water. So just make sure that they're not sitting on the ground getting waterlogged. That's their biggest risk now over the winter. But roses are hardy plants, aren't they? They really are, yeah. yeah. Really, really are. They're still great. in flower now in gardens. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, something called, is it a bougainvillea? Bougainvillea? 
Yeah, spot on. Uh, yeah, okay, on so somebody has one uh, wants to know what to do with it for the winter. It's in a pot in a roofed outdoor area. It is south facing. It has had beautiful pink flowers on it all summer and there's actually still some of them there. Any tips for care of it now over the winter? Thanking you. Bring it to Portugal with you for the winter. <laughs> That's the only tip I could give you. Um, the the bougainvilliers, you know them all right, Trish. If you see them in their native habitat when we go on holidays to, you know, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain, wherever you go, you'll see them kind of dripping over balconies. And those pink flowers that she's referring to, without getting too technical about it, they're not actually flowers. They're the bracts which uh, attract the insects to the tiny little white flower inside. But it, it's, it's for these bracts that they're grown. And you, you, you see them. They're, they're really, really gorgeous. But they don't thrive in Ireland, I'm afraid. No matter what we do, we get too much rain and too, too cold. The way she describes it there, that she has it in a covered roof garden in a south-facing aspect, is as good as you can get for it, really. There's not much more you can do in terms of tips. It's Obviously, that area isn't going to be getting frost because it's covered, but if it was getting particularly cold, you would throw some horticultural fleece over it just to protect it from the, the very low temperatures. Um, uh, in terms of rain, it's not going to be waterlogged because it's covered. So really, you're doing everything that you can in Ireland. Uh, and then come the spring, I would cut it back a bit and feed it with a good tomato food to try and really uh, promote more flowers on it. OK, and this has come up a few times now over the last few weeks. Uh, this is another listener saying, my lilies didn't flower. I haven't flowered for the last two years. Getting lots of leaves, but no flowers. And I think I probably answered this in much the same way the last time I came up, and that is... Uh, the term lily, unfortunately, I, I'm, not, I'm not deliberately being vague now, but lily as a common term is used to describe many different plants. So you have St. Anthony's lily and you have uh, the Easter lily and then you have you've actual lilies which belong to the genus Lilium. Now the reason I'm going through all that is not to bore you, but it, it, depending on which plant it is, you treat it in a different way. So if it's something like the Arum lily or St. Anthony's lily, that's, that's just a herbaceous perennial, which means it's a plant that comes on every year, Trish, uh, and herbaceous just means it dies back for the winter underground. So what you would do with that is lift it out of the ground now during the winter months, divide that clump into four or five different individual plants, uh, and then you're rejuvenating the parent plant by doing that because it's got congested, and that could and, and should lead to it producing more flowers. That's if it's that type of lily. However, if it's lilium, which is like your, your classic uh, oriental or asiatic lilies, you know those beautiful scented lilies that yeah. you get in, in bunches of flower. Yeah, the uh, well, they're a bulb. Yeah, so they're a bulb. So you, you'd, you treat them in much the same way as you would a daffodil. And if they've stopped flowering, it could be just, again, that it's got congested, so the bulbs need to be pulled apart from each other. Do that now, the foliage has all died off, uh, and plant them as individual bulbs in pots or in different parts of the garden. And again, next spring, when they start emerging from the ground, uh, feed them with a good tomato food to drive on flowers. And you'll have loads, you'll have, you'll have extra lilies over, over what you had before you first planted them. And Mary says, gar- multiplied. gardening question, please, for Peter. I planted perfectly healthy violas in a window box outside. I did it a few weeks ago. But in the past week, black spots are appearing on the leaves. Any idea what could be causing that? I do have an idea, I'm afraid. Uh, it's, it's, it's viola black spot. There is a long Latin name, for, but we refer to it as pansy or viola black spot. It's a fungal infection. And when you say you planted them a couple of weeks ago and they're in perfect condition, I suppose the good news from your point of view is that you haven't done anything wrong and your, your garden hasn't got the disease. It's most likely, in fact, I nearly say 100%, that it came in with the plants because it is a common problem uh, with growers, like commercial growers of, of violas and pansies to get this. So once they get it, there's nothing you can do, I'm afraid. It's it's time for the for throwing them out. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, I would say nearly 100% came. I'm not blaming whatever garden centre or nursery you bought them from. Very often they wouldn't see it, uh, but, but it came in with the plant, I'm afraid. Uh, somebody wants to set Grisolinia hedging. Is now the right uh, time? And if so, what kind of manure or fertiliser would you use? Well, now is a perfect time for planting hedges, trees, everything. Uh, but if you want um, potted plants, if you want potted plants, you could plant them now. But if you want bare root plants, which are, as they sound, they're plants that are just lifted from the nursery field and they're not in pots, uh, you're a bit early yet. They won't be available, I would say, probably till November onwards. So we'll give it another month, get the bare root plants. The advantage of bare root, of course, is that they're much, much cheaper to grow, to grow than potted plants. Potted plants will tend to be stronger. In terms of what kind of manure, you probably won't even need much, being honest with you, if, it's, um, if you're um, planting in good soil. Uh, but maybe use a seaweed, some seaweed granular feed beneath it. That'll draw the roots down into the soil quicker. So dig your hole or your trench, uh, base dress it with some good granular seaweed feed, an organic one. There's plenty of them out there now. And, uh, and give it loads and loads of water next summer. Can you apply copper sulphate to roses for black spot? Mary wants to know. You absolutely, not only can you, but I would recommend it. But I wonder, does she mean, can you do it now? Uh, and, and copper sulphate is a grand product to use, but I would say only once a year. So timing is all important. Uh, so I would say don't do it now. Wait till what we call bud burst, which is just when the dormant leaf buds re-emerge next spring. It could be March, could be April, depending on the temperatures. That's the best time to put it on. OK, and yes or no, should you prune lavender back now? A listener wants to know prune it back regularly yes yes no but don't prune it too hard never likes to be cut back too hard so I prune it back a few times during the year okay we'll let you away you're busy out I could hear your phone ringing there you've had interesting yeah. um, ringtone on your phone listen uh, Peter thank, <laughs> thank you for that and uh, we'll chat next Wednesday thanks, thanks a million that Cheers. is uh, Peter Bye-bye. Dowdle uh, the Irish Gardener uh, dot uh, com uh, somebody's asking where were the where were the co-action jobs uh, advertised um, I was told when I got a press release from co-action that they advertised in all of the local media and they even went to 11 employment agencies they advertised uh, online and in local media somebody's wondering do they advertise on their own website I simply don't know okay I've got to leave it there my thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon talk to you tomorrow 10 Court today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group want great advice you know who to talk to cmig.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,